When did we go from being casual fans to fan club members to stands of artists? When did fan clubs turn into full fandoms and become such a big part of fans' identities? How has the internet accelerated that as well as other trends? How did we become such passionate fan bases? And for better and for worse, how are we showing our true selves or changing our true selves in the process of being and staying fans and recruiting other people into the fandoms? How do we want these fandoms to be remembered? Are we less likely to leave our fandoms now that we're, more, we're spending more time invested in them every day? Or is that extra time having the opposite effect, causing fatigue, a saturation, and an exposure to the dark underbelly of certain fandoms in the members that have bad intentions? How do we reconcile the, the fans that do terrible things within our own fandoms with the ability to still continue supporting our favorites while still not excusing their behavior? What are the ethics of fandoms these days? How do we even know what those look like? What, what do fans do to get compensated for the free publicity they give their favorite stars? And really, ultimately, what does it mean to be a fan? What is fandom culture? And what, what is the history of it? Who, who, gets to gra who gravitates toward what artists and why? Why are certain fandoms considered mainstream while others are cast aside and dismissed as insignificant or just worth belittling overall? How are fans around the world interacting and connecting with each other through their shared interests? And who is excluded or included from these fandom groups and interests? Who is encouraged to join and who is excluded from doing so? All of these questions and more are what I want to get at in this new mini-series, How to Stand. If you subscribe to 17 Karat K-Pop, you will get these miniseries episodes as they are released regularly over the next few weeks, where I will be unpacking what it means to be a fan, what it has meant in the past, and what it might mean going forward in the future. If you want to get more information about the show and the references made in it, I will be having links revealed on the 17 Karat K-Pop website as well as through the newsletter. Visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com for more information about that. Thank you and enjoy the show. Hello everybody and welcome back to How to Stand. This is episode 2, Cyberdog and Hello Kitty. Today on the show we are going to be talking about the ways that fandom culture really is about active participation and that being a fan of something, especially these days, is not just some passive thing where you watch a certain TV show a lot or you listen to a certain artist's music a lot, but it can be a very active part built into fans' schedules from posting certain memes and edits online to going to actual physical pop-up locations to interact with other fans and buy merch and whatnot. So we are going to talk about some of those active fan practices today. And we're going to start by talking about the physical locations that fans get to go to to really live out their dreams and why they might want to do that. So this trend is actually more common than you may realize where there are certain places that you may have heard of like the Museum of Ice Cream and there's a Museum of Avocados and those places are not really about ice cream or avocados. They have a little bit of surface level history or some related knowledge you can learn there but really it's just a catchy attention getting name and they are basically just photo op buildings where people get to buy tickets and then they get to walk through this museum of sorts for the most Instagrammable pictures imaginable with all sorts of murals, ball pits, swing sets, 
and whatnot. So it's kind of like a life-size playground mixed with just every Instagram filter ever on the walls for you to post Instagram-worthy content with. So why did those pop-up Instagram experiences really have the success they did but not super long-term? Why have those not really been... Um, been they've been the, su subjected to a lot of criticism and controversy and debate about being overpriced and not treating workers fairly and whatnot. So why are they plagued with concerns when pop-ups for pop culture-themed events are not? Why are, do those have so much staying power? Really, the question is, what is the difference between going to a pop-up event for Stranger Things, for example, compared to going to a similar, uniquely aesthetic Unique, de uniquely designed experience for some other Instagrammable purpose that doesn't have to do with a TV show you like. What is the difference and why do people go to these things and what, why, to what do we owe their varying degrees of success? That is what we're going to get into. And the first example I found with an, actually a clothing store called Cyberdog. So Cyberdog is basically a rave mixed with a retail store. It is in London, but it also has some pop-ups that have formed in other countries since its development. It is way more than a store, is what regular customers will tell you. It is a vibe. It is a, it is a rave place, as other retail stores in London are as well. But it has a very, very, very unique aesthetic going for it. It is basically... It looks like the kind of lair that Scooby-Doo characters go into when they're trying to find the villain or something. It's very, it's very, it's as if a store, like all the lights got, like the power went out in a Hot Topic and so they lit it back up with like only neon stuff and it's in outer space. So it's like an outer space Hot Topic with neon, if that makes sense. It's a very unique look going for it. And it has this whole backstory where this literal cyber dog, half robot, half dog, is the brand's mascot. He has a whole backstory about how he ended up on Earth, but he's from another planet. And so you can actually see this physical spaceship that he landed on in his backstory as a prop in the store. This store also keeps the outer space theme going with spaceship pods in place of regular looking dressing rooms. So you actually go through spaceship sliding doors to get to your dressing room. The music definitely matches this outer space intergalactic mood as well. And really it's a place where you're kind of scoffed at if you don't follow the theme. You know, this is not like you go club hopping and can just wear jeans and a t-shirt and go to wherever throughout the night. You really are expected to go in this unofficial unwritten dress code of neon and black accents or vice versa, black with neon accents to your outfit. It is all for a very specific vibe and there are a lot of unwritten rules regarding the cyberdog consumer culture. So that translates into who they hire to perform at the nights as well. So they have artists like A-pop who go there. So they 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 book acts like A-pop who are very much matching their aesthetic in nothing outside of that. So um, if you don't know, A-pop is a group 
basically that has this whole album that all, that what you really need to know that makes sense is the most is that the album intro basically includes this monologue about an alien abduction storyline. So that's pretty much the vibe of the album. So it is quite a popular scene there and there is uh, there are a lot of questions you probably have naturally about why and what is the big deal and that's bizarre and what is that all about and we are going to get back to explaining that in a minute but let's talk about some more pop-up experiences that are pop culture themed and what they have in common then so there are a lot of places where super fans of sources of pop culture entertainment can really feel like they are stepping into those fictional worlds that they fell in love with from the Universal Studios Harry Potter theme park to possibly a Hunger Games themed uh, in-person experience that is still being developed allegedly, although of course with the pandemic, who knows anymore. But there's also you know Finding Nemo. You can actually in in uh, Universal or Disney, you can actually talk to a Nemo character through this really unique uh, technology. There are all sorts of interactive experiences cropping up where fans can actually feel like they are really a part of their the franchise that they love the most. And that even takes the form of tours. Game of Thrones is just one of many examples where an, a touring orchestra actually brings the show's soundtrack to life. So some major examples of actual actual buildings used for this type of immersive experience. You've got the House of BTS, which is in South Korea. They have a four-story building where the merch you can buy there is actually in the basement, so you have to walk past the atmospheric stuff first. So it's not just a retail store. The emphasis really is placed on the ground level, which is all about these interactive elements. It's a very Instagram-worthy just really aesthetically pleasing place to walk around and take pictures in. It's got a lot of interactive fun, just like a keyboard on the floor and whatnot, and it just has all those little things that will hopefully bring out your inner child. But it also has iconic spots where you can take a picture and recreate a scene from a music video, like the iconic bridge from one of their album covers, as well as the Spring Day music video, and similar moments like that where you can actually feel like you are in one of your favorite BTS music videos. There have been similar pop-up experiences like Britney Spears' The Zone, which is labeled as the most immersive fan experience ever, but of course that is a bit, um, a bit uh, subjective to say. It, is, it has nine interactive rooms. You can pose and take pictures in a room full of snakes. You can take uh, pictures in a classroom setting we can take them by the lockers in this outer space type place on the airplane. All those iconic Britney Spears music video sets are recreated with extreme detail and precision. And you can feel like you're living in a Britney video if you go to that place. And of course, it also has a gift shop as part of the place. You can actually just shop there. You don't need to buy a ticket for the room tour if you you can still just buy stuff from them. Your ticket also comes with a QR code type situation where you can scan it and engage in this interactive video content. So that is something that has gotten quite positive feedback from fans and some even want to hold parties and events and even weddings in that venue and they let you book it for special events. 
Similarly, there is a Mean Girls pop-up event that started called Fetch Naturally. Side note, is anyone ever going to tell them that Fetch did happen? I, I think Gretchen will be very pleased. Fetch did happen. She did make it happen. Anyway, that one, it has slightly less good reviews because it's a bit extra with the pink. And they had the audacity to not open on Wednesdays, so you can't actually wear pink on Wednesdays at that uh, pop-up event. There's There are similar pop-up diners that are recreated sets from shows, like Saved by the Bell has Saved by the Max. And that was a pop-up diner that really actually got rave reviews. And so apparently very, very good in terms of the food and the atmosphere, which actually that had L.A. and Chicago locations. There's also just in general pop stars have had sensory environments so you can really feel like you're living in the album for a listening party that is next level like Troy Sivan has brought fans together for uh, what looks like basically playing parachute like you would in, in elementary school PE but it's basically in this giant inflatable light up bubble the, he played the music within and all the fans just sat in a circle to listen to it. Ariana Grande and Camila Cabello, all sorts of other stars have had sensory pop-up experiences to enhance the first listen of their new music as well. Also, Friends, they had a special pop-up event in fall of 2019 to celebrate the show's 25th anniversary where you could actually go and take pictures on a replica Friends set for $30. And the, you could even, if you were in other parts of the world, have that experience because the iconic orange couch from the show was had replicas made and sent to different countries. So you could just randomly go pose for the for a picture with the friend's couch to celebrate the show's 25th anniversary. So the real question, of course, is why would you do that? And especially if you're not super into Instagram and Snapchat and don't know and don't really care about your social media presence, what is the big deal? Why would you go to these places to take pictures? It's just, you know, you could argue that it's overpriced. I mean, the Mean Girls event was $45, but then you could say it's actually pretty cheap because like the Saved by the Bella event was $40, but that includes a whole meal. So people debate, you know, why are, but the bottom line is just the debate is about why are you going? Not just why are you spending your money, but why do these people want to go to these recreations? What is the big deal that seems very just odd and just a money grab that they're trying to, yeah, take money from fans? So I think the best way to really explain the mindset behind wanting to go to those places is through the Stranger Things example. In Logan Square on Milwaukee Avenue in 2017, there was a Stranger Things pop-up bar that basically recreated the whole Stranger Things aesthetic and set design, and it was unofficial. So basically, these Stranger Things super fans, they decided to create a pop-up bar. They had a six-week lease on it, and they just wanted to have a, a short little event for throughout those weeks to celebrate the show and it really fans came out in droves for this thing it was so popular so word did get back to the creators of stranger things and they issued them a cease and desist letter but the cease and desist letter is kind of just cute and nerdy and the opposite of intimidating so here's what it said danny and doug my walkie talkie is busted so i had to write this note instead 
I heard you launched a Stranger Things pop-up bar at your Logan Square location. Look, I don't want you to think I'm a total wastoid, and I love how much you guys love the show, but unless I'm living in the Upside Down, I don't think we did a deal with you for this pop-up. You're obviously creative type, so I'm sure you can appreciate that it's important to us to have a say in how our fans encounter the worlds we build. We're not going to go full Dr. Brenner on you, but we ask that you please, one, not extend this pop-up beyond its six-week running end in, in, run ending in September, and two, reach out to us for permission if you plan to do something like this again. Let me know as soon as possible that you agree to these requests. We love our fans more than everything, but you should know that the Demogorgon is not always as forgiving, so please don't make us call your mom. So that is basically what happened. After the six weeks, the bar did uh, close down and they they went with, they complied with the show's creator's requests and that was that. But they did not actually push for suing them or anything like that for any copyright issue. They just said thanks for being fans but don't do this again in the nicest way possible. With a lot of references throughout their uh, cease and desist letter of sorts that were just special inside jokes of sorts between a fan and the show's creator. That experience I highlight because it really sums up all of these immersive fan experiences and why people would want to engage in them. Trying to put myself in the shoes of those bar owners, really I can imagine that in that situation, had I gotten a cease and desist letter, I would have honestly been kind of starstruck and freaked out in a good way. I would be quite excited. And especially seeing every little reference in the cease and desist letter that people who don't watch Stranger Things don't understand the reference to, I would be, I would feel special in the know. And that's, would really, of course I would then, you know, do what they asked. And I would probably honestly be a bigger fan of the show after the cease and desist letter because it just showed the care and the, the likability of the show and the people behind the show. I also really want to zone in on the fact that they use the phrase, um, it's important for us to have a say in how our fans encounter the worlds we build. And that really sums it all up, is that this is all about world building. And so when you are invited into another world, it gives you a special feeling, like you are accepted somewhere. And it really just, you know, people want to feel included and welcome into this totally new world. And so... It not only feels like a cool way to bond with other people when you meet someone, for example, who is really into Stranger Things as well, and you can share those inside jokes that other people wouldn't understand if they don't watch the show, but then you also feel like you can, you have permission to have that excitement and be, feel special and a part of something in that fandom and you are welcome into that world, and so it's just taken to the next level when you are welcome into that world in the physical world, and not just in terms of getting to watch the show as other people around the world are also tuning in and engaging in that same conversation. It's a welcoming thing. It's a sense that not only is this your passion and something you love, but it's something you are welcome to love and be a part of, and you can actively contribute to holding up the, the popularity of this pop culture icon that you love and want to spread the word about so other people can feel welcome into the fandom as well and watch it grow. And so really, how I put this uh, in perspective for me is, as a huge BTS fan, 
how I would feel going to the house of BTS, fingers crossed that happens at some point in the, because you never know for me, but anyway, so, because I think about how when I first discovered BTS and got immersed in their music video storylines, because they're like mini movies, they tell a continuous story, and it's really cool to just watch the videos, because not only are they aesthetic, and not only is the music great, but the storyline, it has all these little Easter eggs that fans can decode together, and it just has something about it that drags you in, it draws you in. It, they have some videos that has start with a monologue that leaves you thinking. It's very thought-provoking, layered, complex content, as if mini-episodes of a deep TV series. And so I got very immersed in this music video world and fell down the BTS rabbit hole very quickly. And so to see them in concert for the first time was an example of when I really felt this excitement in a sense of feeling included. It was almost like a sense of shock because it was like this world that I've spent so much time in on my own is actually a world that other people are in as well. This is a thing that is open to so many people and it's not just just me and them. It is something that is shared with so many and it just spreads the good vibes and it it's just so exciting to feel like this is a thing. It's not just me or not just in my head. This is a thing that every that other people really enjoy as well and so that feeling is really just indescribably wonderful and so to think that I could go actually be on the bench like the spring day music video bench that may feel like it's just a piece of wood that you sit on why on earth would you travel for a photo up there but it has so much more meaning because it is a physical way to it is a physical manifestation it is a physical uh, symbol of the world that you thought no one else could see or understand and appreciate. And it is a way that fans can gather in person and get to know each other and just get excited over the same thing together. And so that is how I kind of view the friend's couch situation too, because of course at first it sounds like people really would travel far and wide to pose with the friend's couch, what the heck? But think about, you know, what that means because you gather there, you meet other fans, and you pose, not, you're, it's, you're not just posing on a couch. It carries so much more meaning because you are posing on a symbol of a key to another world that you got. You get to feel like you're not just watching and being immersed in this other world with these fictional characters and plots, you are actually helping to prolong the plots because you're continuing on the popularity of the show and you feel very immersed in that world. It's really the excitement that comes from a fictional world suddenly feeling like it's not fictional anymore. It's in reality. It is real. It is something that you've spent a lot of time thinking about, but now you actually get to feel like you are actively contributing to the world building that you fell in love with. So the worlds you fall in love with, you suddenly feel like you are actually adding to, and that feeling is just one of confidence and pride and, and gratitude. And so this is so much more than just rooms that are money grabs, although you know that's part of it with all the gift shops and whatnot. But I'll just say that one of the ways that fandom participation remains so the way fandoms stay so passionate and why fandom participation remains uh, the force that it is these days and why fans get, get so passionate and stay that way is 
One of those ways is with these physical locations that are set up so they can feel like, don't worry, this is not just you. It's a reassurance, it's an affirmation that this is a fandom worth being in. It is a real a real thing with a lot of value to a lot of people. It's a way of reassuring fans um, and making them realize that this world building deserves to continue and they can contribute to that and feel a part of it. And it's just a very exciting, indescribable feeling. So with the Stranger Things bar, it's really cool that they gave them permission to finish up the six-week run. I'm not condoning, I'm not uh, promoting you do uh, things that go against copyright rules, but just saying that it's very cool that they both, the creators and these bar owners, were on the same page about this world is so exciting and immersive for us, we want to share that feeling with other people. And the fact that they both both parties got that and understood that and, and appreciated that is a very cool thing, and it really just shows how immersed the fans can be nowadays, and it's, it's a very cool thing. So what does this have to do with CyberDog and stores like that? It's all about a unique vibe and atmosphere. So if you do want to go to CyberDog, you love the backstory. You think it's goofy and fun. You like the dress code. You like the whole immersive experience. It's all about the atmosphere is what I find so interesting. That with some of these events, it's not just a piece of furniture that you pose by. It's not just a cool background for an Instagram picture. It's not just a piece of merch you want to buy at the store. It is all of that combined and more. So it's about all of these parts coming together to create a very atmospheric vibe from the music to the lighting to the outfits. Really, it's a place where all of these components form this super unique experience for a select group of people. And so that is what fandoms are all about, that mix of exclusive and inclusive that is just a fun gathering spot. And so CyberDog is really, I think that's what the appeal is of places like that is it's something that everyone feels like you have to get and that not everyone gets or understands the appeal of and that ex is exciting, makes you feel exclusive, but also it's it's very um, rewarding and a kind of a relief when you get to be with other people who also get get that and get that feeling and get the storyline and just like to be, like to follow that goofy storyline as well and be in that environment. So it's really all about the atmosphere and the world building that CyberDog has created, as well as other stores that have what might be described as a cult-like following, you know? The stores that really seem to have a very specific demographic or otherwise target audience, that is why. So hopefully that helps clarify why some certain things become such a big franchise, is because of the world building that fans got to actively add to and be a part of and get excited over with other people. So we've talked so far about two main ways that fandom culture is really, it, the passion can be sustained for long term. The first one being through the intriguing and interesting ways that musicians and fans interact with each other, like with AKB48 and similar groups. Today we talked about the ways that they have physical pop-up events or sometimes physical stores that are just permanent where they get to interact with like-minded people. And next we are going to talk about the ways that the internet and animation and cartoon characters are used to further fan agendas as well. So after the break, stay tuned for that. Whether you think you know what kawaii culture is all about or you don't, you probably know more than you think and just may have not heard the technical term for it. 
Kawaii actually does have an origin story that's very specific with a that comes with a very specific definition, but the term has become more broadly applicable and really encompasses a whole lot of things now. So basically it can be summed up kind of as cutesiness. So according to Misha Janet, she is the founder of Tokyo Fashion Diaries as well as a panelist on the Kauai International Show. And she describes it as, quote, a delicate cuteness, like a weak, small type of thing. It's also an embodiment of all that's happy and positive. So basically what Kauai is is cuteness, it's cartoons, and if you're trying to think of anything from Japan that embodies all of this cuteness and this gentle nature, this innocent nature, happiness, optimism, childlike innocence, it's probably Hello Kitty, and you would be right. Hello Kitty is an ultimate manifestation of this kawaii image that has really taken over the globe. And so, why is that? Why do we love Hello Kitty? Why is Hello Kitty on absolutely everything? Who is Hello Kitty? We need to discuss. So, backstory. Hello Kitty is an anthropomorphic version of a Japanese bobcat, if you didn't know. Her actual character name is Kitty White. So she actually has a whole backstory where she lives in London. That fact we're going to get back to because that is very significant. So Hello Kitty was actually started in 1974, but she hit the USA in 1976. And that became a moment where she was considered to really be making it overseas. So she was always intended to do that, to make it overseas eventually. According to the Journal of Asian Studies, quote, icons like Hello Kitty were always intended to be global. And the Sanrio's founder, Sanrio is the company that makes Hello Kitty, even said that it was meant to be the Japanese cat that overtook the American mouse. Essentially roasting Mickey Mouse in a very formal way. And so basically Hello Kitty was intended to help spread Japanese culture and gain this global influence, which naturally was very successful. So designed with this appeal, they at, a, at the same time Hello Kitty was designed with very specific localized images in mind. So she actually ended up being designed at first and with different details in terms of her look and her hobbies and backstory depending on the market they were targeting. So there was a different kitty design for the USA, a different kitty design for Taiwan, Hong Kong, and other different parts of the world. But they had varying degrees of success. The Taiwan and Hong Kong Hello Kitty figures really didn't take off very much and the USA one kind of did but really, she maintained this one main image. And when questioning specifically tai Taiwan and Hong Kong fan fans about w why they didn't really resonate with their localized versions of this, this character, they responded basically alluding to or overtly stating that they liked Hello Kitty because she was from Japan. That interested them. And they really wanted to, when it was suddenly, oh no, this Hello Kitty is from where you are from, that kind of got rid of some of this, this excitement that they got an intrigue from being invested in a character from somewhere else they may have never traveled to before. So 
Seeing that, Hello Kitty basically just create just turned into this uniform image without those localized attempts as much. However, there were always different technical changes that had to be made to her or the symbols that came with her just because of different cultural taboos and other symbols. For example, there is a very interesting time where there was this snail who was basically a a symbol of good luck in a way, but in the United States that design was deemed not acceptable and wouldn't make sense as a symbol of good luck, and so the United States actually requested that the snail uh, pet, snail uh, partner in crime, I guess, of Hello Kitty, be dropped from her image for USA Promotions, which that request was granted. So there are sometimes just cultural differences that don't translate, and so those have been tweaked over time. But for the most part, especially starting the 1980s, the creators and designers of Hello Kitty realized that it was just best to, and going to be most effective, to just keep her image pretty uniform globally. And that ended up really paying off. If you didn't notice, in case you've been living under a rock, Hello Kitty, you can get everything Hello Kitty all over the place, and especially in Japan. She is everywhere. She's she's on bed sheets, birthday party supplies, school supplies, toys and plushies and dolls. She's had several TV series starting in the 80s with the Furry Tail Theater. The Furry Tail Theater that I actually watched those videos of as a kid, which was always funny to me because Hello Kitty doesn't have a mouth, which was kind of part of the point of the kawaii definition of her being super, uh, super gentle and just this this shy presence, so to give her a mouth for the TV show seemed a little counterintuitive, but people went with it. She's had all sorts of friends that have formed, like My Melody and Tuxedo Sam, so she has other animal friends that expanded the Hello Kitty universe, computer games, video games, tech accessories, she's even on construction signs in Japan, and you can actually ride a Hello Kitty themed bullet train in Japan, as well as go to Hello Kitty decked out cafes, stores. There are even some Sanrio character dedicated stores in the USA as well. Everything. You can even get Hello Kitty hot sauce, Hello Kitty individually wrapped prunes, Hello Kitty toasters that form a Hello Kitty face on your toast. So many more. And actually, Hello Kitty has expanded to so many products that when the company, when Sanrio, the company that makes Hello Kitty products, is reached for comment and asked about how many exactly, they can't give an exact number. Their estimate is between 12,000 and 15,000 Hello Kitty products on the market. And of course, there are, that's a complicated picture nowadays with people on eBay and whatnot selling knockoffs or whatever of Hello Kitty's image, but all to say that she is everywhere. And why did she take over the world? I think my next example might help understand that. Another character we need to talk about before we go circle back to Hello Kitty is Pensu. If you didn't know, Pensu is a mascot in South Korea, basically a seven-foot penguin of sorts, who is intentionally this character that was designed to be genderless and a 10-year-old but with a very deep voice. So the age, you can forget he's a 10-year-old character because um, he sounds like an adult, he's 7 feet tall, 
and he has a very interesting look on his face, where a lot of characters in suits are designed to have a big smile on their face. He just looks apathetic and like he would rather be anywhere else. This character was created by the education broadcasting system in South Korea, and they designed it with all ages in mind because they felt that they wanted to do something different because the audience would start expecting another cartoon with a big grin. So intentionally, they wanted to make things a little fresh and give him a more relatable air as opposed to a fake smile. And so Pensu's image really did appeal to all ages as intended. He really gained quite a following among millennials especially, and it really was for, I think, the most com the most comparable cartoon character I can think of is Dilbert, because Dilbert is very, or maybe even Squidward from Spongebob, the characters who are very cynical or just snarky, um, dry humor, very blunt, and not afraid to to call out people, tell them how they really feel. All of that is what millennials find relatable about Pensu, who basically he 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 talks like like they or they do or they want to. That is the thing. They say the quiet part out loud and that can be very appealing. You can kind of feel like you're you're getting something off your chest by just letting them do it for you in a way. You know, like when Squidward says something or where's that button that says I really wish I weren't here right now? It's a mood. And Pensu basically is a mood, which is perfect for the meme era especially. So, Pensu doesn't use honorifics, doesn't use certain terms to signify a acknowledgement of um, age dictating hierarchy and status and things like that. He basically just speaks always informally, which is a breath of fresh air for millennials in South Korea to see. He always talks in a way that's very pretty blunt and relatable, and he admits, like, I don't want to do that, or it blames other people when things go wrong in his situations. He's re He really, relatability is his ultimate strong suit. It's led him to have over 1.2 million YouTube subscribers. He's in demand for so many sponsorships in South Korea that he's been nicknamed the President of Workers, just overall the President of Workers. He opens up about still living a modest lifestyle. His backstory is that he still just sleeps in an EBS headquarters room, so he doesn't really have like a fancy mansion or anything. He ditches a lot of cultural norms and just lives a very modest, um, subdued life. The funniest thing to me that really indicates how successful he is as a character and how loved he is, is that he beat out the sensational BTS for South Korea's Person of the Year Award, where he actually got 20.9% of the vote, while BTS got 17.6%. This was with over 2,300 respondents, and this is the first time that he ended up, that a character like Pensu, who is not human, ended up actually winning this Person of the Year Award. And honestly, part of Pensu's character description was outright admitting that he that Pensu's goal is to be more popular than BTS, so that became part of his official character description. And fans have really seemed to just enjoy this along with Pensu, enjoyed watching and helping him succeed, because it's kind of like a friend that you want to see succeed, someone relatable to you, who knows the struggle is real and all of that, and to watch them succeed just leads to this good feeling. 
So, what do Pensive and Hello Kitty have in common? Well, I want to give one more broader example first of what I'm getting at here. So, these are not the only two main character cartoon characters that have really changed the world and culture as we know it. In fact, comics and other versions of 2D or 3D characters have been used for all sorts of serious issues as well over time and to resonate with entire countries and communities. Dating back at least as far back as 1941, when FDR sent 17 different people to serve as citizen diplomats for the USA and to represent the USA in South America, these 17 diplomats included Walt Disney as well as different musicians, artists, and writers. So really, FDR sent out these cultural cultural forces to other countries to serve as representatives of the United States in what we could show the world we offered. And the State Department has even participated in San Diego's Comic-Con before. They actually held a panel in California one year called Comics in Animation Ambassadors to the Rescue, where cartoon characters were utilized and discussed on a panel about how they could be used to help be a cultural force for good and be a, a literal icon of of whatever the USA values were that we hope to promote. And comics have always been viewed that way. They've been implemented, comics as well as their characters, to talk to interna the international community because comics diplomacy is a real subject area. It's a real term, and it's really about that soft power, that ability to form these diplomatic relationships and be friendly with other countries through these very unthreatening, non-threatening characters, through just their cuteness and their universal appeal and our ability to all find them universally adorable. And it's something to bond over and it just really eases tensions between countries. So cartoon ambassadors for countries at prominent political events are nothing new and have been used also because they're a fun visual representation of what messages we want to get across where you don't it doesn't matter what language you speak you can get what is happening in a comic and so that is really it's been the power of that has really been utilized and realized over time even there are some I could go on and on but a few more examples the US embassy in Seoul invited a cartoonist, Pat Badgley, to give lectures on using cartoons to embrace and teach the principles of freedom of speech. So basically, our values, we, uh, we have been able to spread through these characters and with the, their help. Also, the U.S. Beijing Embassy led this month called American Animation and Comics Month, which was basically a media campaign led by the president of the National Cartoonist Society, again, to show the power of animated characters to really build up and strengthen relationships around the world. And it's been this has been continued to be a mission among fans as well as among these creators. So what do what is it though? As I say that these characters are a special version of soft power that we can all bond over over the relatability and or cuteness, what is it about their cuteness? Why do we find them cute to even begin with? I think it'll help to give some more background context by talking about what soft power is and all is all about. So the term soft power basically is 
it was created in contrast to hard power, which refers to overt uses of force, wartime measures, and things like that. Soft power between countries is the opposite. Where it is more about the ability to use culture as a tool to affect your relationship status with different countries and affect your trade or affect some other aspect of communication and life um, between those countries. It was a term created by Joseph Nye, an American scholar and former Assistant Secretary of State for Defense, and Joseph Nye basically wrote this piece in Foreign Policy, and in a 1990 issue of Foreign Policy, he laid out what he meant by soft power. He basically said in the wake of the Cold War that power needed to be reconceptualized and we needed to look at better ways, more productive ways to get along with other countries. The concept gained a lot of ground and value starting in the 1990s and it was drawn in contrast to coercive power. So soft power is considered co-optive whereas hard power is viewed as coercive. Soft power is a way that seems that has been considered much better long term, whereas hard power, of course, can make a country feel superior in the moment. But in terms of the long term effects, soft power is considered a better way to go. It is seen as a way to spread ideology and knowledge and other things that are just hard to measure is why this term was really needed to be created and defined and solidified as a real concept to invest time and energy in because soft power is a way that can translate to more physical manifestations of power and status reports in a way. Because soft power involves the spreading of ideas and other things that form the foundation of policy and other really concrete political and economic changes around the world. And so that is basically the argument laid out in what the term really needs. And one main... One main thing that uh, Joseph and I wanted to point out is that it's natural to criticize this as being an overblown assumption that soft power can fix the world and that hard power never needs to resort to be resorted to, but he insists that's not really what he meant to say and to treat soft power as this end-all be-all. He viewed it as an accompanying force or at least not the end-all be-all, but just something that we had to still always keep in mind and hopefully just decide takes precedence over hard power, especially because Article 9 in the Japanese Constitution includes this clause that forbids resorting to war to settle international disputes involving the state. Although there have been some edits to that article since it was issued officially, um, all to say really that Japan in law has acknowledged that they hope to uh, not have to and consider it against the law, really, or don't want to consider it uh, permissible to jump to hard power solutions to their problems. And so Japan, in particular, has really sought to latch onto the soft power concept for their force throughout the world. And it's come to much success. It really has helped their economy as well, especially because of the post-World War II industrialization and the economic modernization Japan has always been known for really went into warp speed after the war. And so soft power really helped with that. So the one main example that Nye gives for its power is there was a young Chinese activist who 
watched a lot of American TV and watched a lot of American courtroom dramas that we we have a lot of legal system themed shows in the USA and so after watching those this activist assumed that that is just what you do with any complaint that you could just go report to a court and go to the courtroom and demand that something change and so this activist really did go to a physical courtroom and was you know of course not taken seriously but he gives that example just to say that TV and movies and media overall really does have an impact on what people actually do in their lives. It's more than just what they think about. It then triggers action. It's it's leads. That's what was meant by soft power being all about the exchange of ideas. That is actually very powerful and cannot be underestimated because it really does manifest into real concrete change in the world. Another piece worth noting here that's related is called Japan's Gross National Cool by Douglas McRae, where he basically wrote about his observations after he spent three months traveling and interviewing people throughout Japan and talking to all of these creative people as well as scientists and people in a variety of other areas of, of work. And he said, quote, a cultural superpower needs a healthy economic base, but not necessarily a healthy economy. Basically, arguing that, ironically, although Japan has had some real economic blows and recessions, that may have actually helped the economy in some ways up its quote-unquote cool factor because it, it's a t these recessions have been times when consumers might feel they really have nothing to lose and it has given them the freedom to then pursue their own unique entrepreneurial goals, not worry as much as to go to... Um, mainstream jobs, for lack of a better term, feeling like, well, if those jobs aren't there anyway, I'll make my own career path that's just unprecedented. People felt more creative freedom and downtime to engage in creative pursuits and felt this new independence and freedom of just not letting these big businesses control their lives and really taking matters into their own hands. And it really, recessions and other signs of economic downturn really do shape people's spending habits and can really cause long-term changes to how they think about how they want to participate in consumerism, in in culture, and what they in their buying habits really. So this piece also talks about how Japan has a lot of one-child households, so that also affects spending. They're more likely to just feel free to spend more money when they don't have to share it with other siblings. It's also interesting that he notes, quote, Japanese consumers haven't stopped buying high-end products, as a number of sociologists I spoke with stressed. They simply save up longer for them. So basically what he gets at in that piece is that Japan's cool factor, as he describes it, is able to withstand all of the economic highs and lows that Japan has gone through historically because it just has this core element that cannot be broken and that really has been embedded in consumers values there and ideals there that really they are able to have the patience to hold on to their money but then still spend it again afterwards. So taken in today's context with COVID-19 think about how lately you probably aren't buying as much as you used to impulse wise you know the impulse buys aren't there not just because you're not physically going to a mall probably these days but because where are you gonna go why would you buy clothes to go dress up and go somewhere or why would you buy something that you're gonna use for that one night out with friends when a lot of those 
reasons we have impulse buy decisions, thinking we might need that thing in the future, end up not being fruitful. So that is really coming into stark relief in people's minds, I think, during this pandemic. And that got me thinking about if that will permanently change how people spend money, especially in the USA, as we have a prolonged uh, pandemic right now and with no signs of ending anytime soon. So now in Japan, that case seems to be the not to worry and it is temporary because there, and so it made me wonder what the future of it in the USA will be because there, it really is like during these moments, people are willing to be patient and still want the high-end products. There is a lot of fast fashion that people wear in Japan. They also just like to stay on top of fashion trends and other trends. So that constant buying of new things and wanting what's new and fresh is an urge that he argues will stay a part of Japan despite economic hardship periods. But in the USA, will that go away or will that give me sense um, return to us after the pandemic so that is something to watch out for, and there's no real answer for. But ultimately, why that sense might return is just because of that cool factor that has remained. That that sense of wanting what is considered uh, worth the most value and the most exclusive to get, which translates to most value in terms of how much you have to pay for it. But they're willing to do that, and it is just part of the culture there. As much as these animated characters can sound like just super wholesome unifiers and cultural ambassadors for different parts of the world, there are some more sinister means they can be used for, to say the least, as well. Of course, there is a whole fringe far-right region of the internet, as well as other things on the dark web that weaponize these characters and turn them into things they initially were not. For example, with Pepe the Frog, who was initially just a fun meme, that was became a cultural symbol of white supremacist groups online, and it manifested into Pepe imagery actually being used on posters and other content at actual white supremacist gatherings in physical locations. So this has tra these things translate from the internet to the physical world. The latest example would be with those same far-right groups perpetuating QAnon and similar theories. They all basically banded together to get a troll doll removed from shelves, and it worked. There is a doll poppy for the Trolls franchise who they alleged was part of this plot they believe in um, about all of these sinister dark things we're not going to get into, but they basically attempted to show that Poppy was a symbol of all of these dark forces and all of that. And basically they added a bunch of inappropriate innuendos to this doll and it worked. The backlash they built online was strong enough and far-reaching enough to reach the creators of this doll and it was pulled from any purchase option. So groups of fans can really mobilize and spread their message online to a point where it really does affect not just consumer interests, but consumers' actual ability to even have those interests at all. This is also is, has been taking the form of political ideology with cartoons for decades. We've, we all know what a political cartoon is. I could go on and on about that. But a key one I find interesting is the really out there ones you wouldn't expect to be political have been used as such. For example, Alice in Wonderland characters have been used time and time again throughout British politics. 
to portray the British government as corrupt and displaying the characters as replacing Tweedledee and Tweedledum or the Red Queen or other characters that are considered untrustworthy and or in general negative and a force worth condemning. And so that is just one of the many, many examples I could give of how how what seemingly just wholesome kids' storybook characters can be utilized for more serious ends and to some success. And it may not be the direct manifestation always, like with the Trolls doll, where you see the result right away, but long-term, just as the positive effects of soft power can take a long time to show up, instead of the instant gratification approach, it's the same with the negative effects. It could take years for people to realize how much the ideas they saw in memes or political cartoons manifested into their psyche over time and led to a certain feeling within them. It started planting a seed within them to think about a politician in a certain way or another character in a certain way. And that can have a lasting impact more than we realize in a way that's hard to quantify, but it's there. Some more extreme examples might be how memes have been weaponized online lately. A key example was when ISIS beheaded two journalists from Japan, and Japan basically, instead of retaliating with hard power, actually ended up just spamming ISIS hashtags online and making their presence unavoidable. So they basically spread kawaii memes and added all these cuteness filters and whatnot to what were supposed to be sinister threatening images. And so whenever you searched certain hashtags online that were affiliated with ISIS, suddenly you just got kawaii stuff. So basically the propaganda was entirely hijacked and rewritten by kawaii, which was quite effective. It's not like it suddenly like led to the erasure of weapons or something like that, but it really delegitimized the cause. It really made the opposition seem a lot less threatening and really showed that the intimidation tactics were not going to work and were actually being mocked. And a similar thing happened lately where K-pop fans around the world banded together and basically made sure that white supremacist and other racist hashtags were filled with suddenly K-pop fan cam images and whatnot instead. So that whenever people tried to use the internet to manifest and add on to their hateful ideologies, they would suddenly be faced with just K-pop content and they couldn't find their their club online to bond over negative things with. And so we made our, we made their presence inescapable. And what that did is Of course, it didn't actually get rid of white supremacy or anything like that, but what it did is it really, again, hijacked the cause, made it look a lot less tough and cool. And it might sound like not much, but you'd be surprised how much that really can start changing people's minds slowly in a way. Not to say this would handle and solve any structural issue on its own, but it can really be more beneficial than people realize when... Suddenly, the people who the people who are drawn to these very consequential, hateful issues and ideologies, suddenly, if they realize that the tough guy image is not asso- no longer associated with that ideology, it really can lose a lot of its appeal to them. Whether they realize that or not, subconsciously, that can really be one of a bigger factor than anyone realizes in their willingness to perpetuate certain ideas, and if those ideas suddenly don't feel 
like they project toughness or superiority, then it really does cause them to take a step back sometimes. And so again, there are critiques to the soft power concept, viewing it as wishful thinking and just not enough to really make concrete change on its own, but it has shown to make change, even if it seems um, negative or overblown or or just rooted in total falsehoods, like with the poppy doll, but it really does have that impact and can affect then what the consumers do. So the key thing to keep in mind is that it really affects how much really how much different countries suddenly get along. For example, there was a South Korean soap opera that became so popular in Japan after a while that Japanese interest in learning the Korean language took off to a level that they've sustained ever since the show came out. This was in the early 2000s and since then there's a there was there's been an uptick since compared to the last century in people in Japan finding it interesting and wanting to learn to speak Korean. Speaking of South Korea's influence, everyone is talking about Parasite and other South Korean films now. We've also got spin-offs of classic South Korean shows like The Masked Singer, and we're also in the process of making a reboot of I Can See Your Voice, and probably other shows are in the pipeline as well. So really, those cultural uh influences that we are willing to incorporate into our own mass media has a lot to do with that soft power and what we think of, how we think of countries that leads us to realize, you know what, I do want to explore that um, and really make it a a natural, uh, typical part of our culture. There's this very uh, significant study and very well-known study called Mirror, Sword, and Jewel by Kurt Singer from Tokyo Imperial University. And what he discovered was that Japan's cultural evolution is basically constantly malleable and influenced by other cultures, but at the same time, it always maintains this unique core identity. And so a key quote from that is, Quote, why this, uh, one, he's wondering why this gifted and active nation has produced so little that has been found acceptable by other countries in an age open to all foreign influences. So really questioning why we feel like belittling other cultures when they've given us so much and it's hard to really wrap our heads around how much of those cultures we use and appre- should really appreciate more in our daily lives. So... What are all the takeaways? What does this have to do with anything? There are three main ones to discuss. One is the fact that the increased globalization of the world is leading to an increased spread of cultural influences. So it's important to acknowledge and understand what soft power is more than ever before as it's utilized and the ease of using it is more utilized than ever before. The second thing is that Kauai culture has become a way to really shift power dynamics and that can have long-lasting implications. It's also important just to keep in mind why people might like these cute characters because of its ability to tame things down, 
uh, simmer down to use these characters as a way to remind people of everyone's own inner child. If you are talking to someone like a child or viewing them as a child, you're going to treat them differently than if you see them as this tough bad guy adult. And that really can have quite a, quite an impact on how you perceive others. People also are probably gravitating towards kawaii and other similar uh, cultures nowadays, even when it comes to fashion and stuff, vintage things are really kind of making a comeback. We see in quarantine, everyone's making their tie-dye and they're um, wearing classic 50s-style dresses again, and just very uh, classic childlike memories being being uh, re repurposed for this new era. And really because it's a time where people are really getting nostalgic. As the world gets faster and faster, and things keep changing more and more, There, so is a faster and faster increase in the desire to just slow down and to really uh, be tap into your inner child and be a kid again and embrace that. Kawaii culture is very normalized in Japan. doesn't matter your age or gender or anything. It's You could be 100 years old and still love to play with Hello Kitty. And so that is an ideology that hopefully will... Uh, become a thing in the USA as well, where it's not stigmatized to just really like these cute characters no matter who you are or how old you are, because really, who wants to grow up? And it's important to stop and really just enjoy uh, feeling youthful and realizing that you don't have to disband your inner child, and that reconnecting with that inner child can actually be a very good thing and really help just community-wise it's really just so incredibly impactful in so many different ways. Finally, the third main takeaway from all of this is that people find other cultures intriguing and it's important to keep in mind why and their origins. So, like I mentioned earlier, Hello Kitty is, her backstory, she's from London, but she's also, her name is Kitty White. She is viewed as something from... Japan, but she's also kind of gotten a westernized image in different ways. So she's a mix, and in the USA we view her as a Japanese character. In Japan they view her sometimes as more of a western character, and in places like Taiwan they view her as from Japan. You know, other parts of the world they might emphasize more the fact she's from London, but basically the the gist of it all to get is that she is from wherever you want her to be. She is considered to have such a, such an accumulated backstory of all these different parts of the world that her she is as exotic or as native as people want to picture her. And that's just important to keep in mind because we need to continue to have a dialogue about other countries and how much we need to stop and really appreciate how much they've positively shaped our own and given us things to laugh at, smile about, share with others interest-wise, build fandoms and relationships among fans of and all of that. However, uh, also keep in mind just how um, other how other cultures are influencing one another. She's basically, Hello Kitty has really had this lasting power because she is the epitome of what not just Japanese culture, but what the world culture and the power of soft power can truly be about and defined by. She manifests the uh, inner child traits that people really hope to reclaim. 
and that is more important than ever at this era. Her lasting power is basically not just in her cultural hybridity, but in her youthfulness, in that inner child that has been used for diplomatic relations around the globe with animated characters for so, so long, and that she really embodies what soft power is all about. It's all about um, viewing other cultures as not a threat, but as a friendship, as a cute, wholesome friendship, and as a way to just get along, because long-term that ends up with better results for both your country and other countries. And again, it has to do with that, like it said, a mere sword and jewel, that desire to keep a culture malleable and open to external influences while maintaining this unique core identity of where it comes from. And so that combination is something that Hello Kitty has always utilized. And this leads to these lasting impacts and views of other cultures and how they view each other. And it really, it's hard to overstate that. I mean, another, just one more of many examples. In 2003, a poll was conducted in China that showed that 20% of Chinese citizens felt close to Japan just because of the fashion, anime, and things like that. So 20% of the population really felt a closeness to another country just because of the, the fact they shared the same cultural content. So it really does lead to these international bonds, and again, that cannot be overstated. So believe it or not, Kauai is quite a force for good, as can be the internet, although it can also be used to other ends. But really, it gets to how the internet is shaping how fans form and develop a passion for some things that are not even considered real. And so what that means we need to do is we need to, as a global community, step back and think about what we want to be real and how what we're doing in the virtual worlds that we live in so much more nowadays than ever before, how much we want those things to actually be extended into the real world. How much we really want to see these physical manifestations of what we say online. And when they do take off into the real world, is should that give us pause? What are the ethical things to consider with the digitization of stuff and the opposite of that? When you when it suddenly when you realize suddenly your impact in the real world and what, how much your soft power is being exerted through the internet. Will that cause us to stop and reflect and reconsider how we, how we handle things online once we see the concrete impact it is having on other cultures? That is what I'm going to touch on in the next episode of How to Stand. We're going to look into what do we define as real, how are we blurring the lines these days between what's virtual and what's real, and the ethical implications of using everything from holograms to CGI characters like Miku uh, to really uh, form a fan base around and what that means for the future of a global community that we live in. So stay tuned for that. That is today's episode. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you all soon.